Hello. Welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very happy to have Camilla Nord. Uh, Camilla is a neuroscientist and associate professor at uh, Cambridge. She has a degree in physiology, psychology, and philosophy from Oxford and her PhD from the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience from University College in London. Her primary focus is on the physiology and neuroscience around mental health disorders. And she is the author of the absolutely fabulous book, The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. I'll just say that from, from the outset here, uh, I have a lot of criticisms about psychology, a little bit of neuroscience, um, mental health, how it's talked about in, in society and in the media. And while I have many criticisms, many people will say, well, well, who do you like or who does it well? Or who are, who are some good scientists and researchers and and, did, you know, what about some books that are pretty good that are, you know, kind of for a general audience or a general public? And I have to 110% recommend uh, Camilla's uh, fabulous book. It is current, up-to-date, balanced, humble. It's, it's, it's everything that I, I want it to be in terms of how we need to communicate science effectively. Um, it's so fresh. Uh, she deals with things so well, so integrated. Um, it's just fabulous. It's a it's a fabulous book. I cannot recommend it enough highly. Um, she is quite lovely, um, and I I think that uh, uh, and, and quite brilliant. And I think people need to 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 read her book and to read her research. She's just great. In the conversation, we talk a lot about the neuroscience of mental health. Um, we talk about how do we define mental health, how the brain is central to mental health, how do we measure subjective versus objective well-being, uh, talk about chronic pain. We, of course, talk about depression, uh, one of the symptoms of depression, and hedonia, taking, uh, not taking pleasure in things we normally take pleasure in, dopamine networks, and some of we give some corrective uh, elements around that about the dopamine system people talk about these dopamine rushes that they get and some of the inaccuracies on that we talk about the utility of behaviorism for motivation we talk about reward and valence we talk about various emotional theories the gut microbiome bayesian brain and predictive processing placebos uh, antidepressants uh, and many other uh, uh, topics again I can't say enough good things about Camilla and her book. I, I, I really, she's kind of the, the, the model in my head. Uh, there's a few others as well, and uh, she, she's one of them um, that, that do this right. They, they get the science right, and they communicate it very well for a general audience. Um, so she's just fabulous. You can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. Uh, subscribe, follow. Uh, I appreciate your contributions as well. Um, feel free to do that. It helps make the podcast even better. Um, and go in, and buy Camilla's book and support her work. And uh, now I bring you Camilla Noor. I am here with Camilla Nord. Uh, Camilla, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to speaking with you. 
Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. Yes, yes. I've, I've been very excited to, to talk with you. Uh, you have a new book out. It's called The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health. And it is absolutely superb. Uh, I was very, very pleased with, with the book. Um, again, as I was telling you beforehand, as someone that works in mental health and clinical psych, uh, this is uh, up to date. It's a very, very current um, it's very balanced. Um, it's none of the nonsensical pop psychology, you know, bullshit that people get half the time. It is good on the science. It's well written. I just can't, I can't recommend it enough highly for everyone. So this is, this is a fantastic book. That is so kind of you to say. So it's out on the 23rd of January in the US. It's been out in the UK for a couple months already. But I particularly like that you think it's absence and bullshit because one of my real sort of, you know, secret agendas in writing the book was to cut through some of what I see as neurobolics. Um, mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. world where n- neuroscience explanations are kind of exploited, abused a little bit to tell mm-hmm. you something kind of meaningless about mental health or, or even physical health, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, I, I hear so many podcasts. I see so many books. I see all this stuff and it just I, I, it's, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. So you, you've done a really good service here to, uh, to, to mental health generally. So we're going to talk all about it. Uh, before we do, why don't you tell listeners uh, just who you are? Uh, just kind of a, a kind of a snapshot of you professionally, academically, and uh, what you're what you're currently into. Yeah, so I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, which means a brain scientist who does human research. So I put people in brain scanners, that kind of thing. Um, and what really has always interested me for more than a decade now is what the brain functions are that support our mental health and that go awry during periods of mental ill health. And my lab has, a, has kind of two particular angles on that. One is that we're really keen on understanding how the brain interacts with the rest of the body to shape our sense of mental health, body-brain interactions, our sense of the body, how physiology in the body impacts mental health. But we're also really keen to use that knowledge sort of immediately to test its treatment potential. So many of our studies involve things like psychological therapy, potential drugs that might be useful, brain stimulation, because we really want to kind of continue that translational pathway and discover new treatments or better understand the treatments we're using. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, again, this is what we need, right? We need this intersection of trying to understand, uh, obviously cognition, uh, we need to understand neuroscience, but we need to see how things are working in tandem and together and for many years, people have kind of been within, you know, I think this is true of every kind of discipline, but kind of siloed off in their kind of corner. And so it sounds like you're doing some really nice stuff trying to coalesce things together, which is great. Yeah, 100%. You do really see these kind of disparate clinical fields versus mm-hmm. neuroscientific basic science fields. And there isn't a lot of dialogue between the two. I, I understand why. It's incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. Some of the work I've done, especially Back during my PhD, I worked very closely with a team of clinical psychologists. And actually what clinical psychology training is, at least in the UK, is often very, very far away from neuroscientific theories about mental health. And so actually there was quite a lot of legwork to kind of sort of conceptually link what clinical psychologists do and kind of the essential treatments that they provide and why the brain might be so important and so interesting in those treatments. Having said that, I also think I'm not, you know, doing this out of some kind of, you know, 
moral obligation. I love it. I find this work mm-hmm. so interesting. I'm so curious to understand it. So mm-hmm. it may be, you know, it may involve a little bit of extra effort to work between the kind of therapeutic treatment side and the experimental mm-hmm. medicine science side. But actually, I think it's so cool and so much fun. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think I, I suspect that it's probably similar here in the United States, I, although I can't verify that. But um, in terms of the clinical psych world and training programs, um, well, there's many problems. But I think there are some really good programs and there are some really good things out there, of course. But um, I think that there's, 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 there's an exposure to kind of uh, you know, neuroscience or, or cognitive science for sure. Um, a lot of the times, I think at least here in the U.S., it tends to be, do you kind of specialize in a type of neuropsychology or something like that? Um, again, which isn't quite the same, but it's getting closer to that world um, because you're trying to look at brain behavior relations a little bit more as opposed to, um, you know, what is this theory or, you know, what is this you know, intervention or treatment, which is great. But um, I, I, I would agree that there has to there is a kind of uh, distance between kind of current neuroscience. Um, and, and that's essential to trying to understand, uh, I think, mental health generally. So, uh, again, you're, you're, you're doing you're doing sounds like moral and fun work at the same time, which is great. Um, so, OK, so so let's let's talk about um, mental health, I guess, generally is this kind of this, you know, big, big banner of sorts. How do you define mental health? And um, you talk about many things in this, such as, you know, the role of, you know, homeostasis. Uh, you can talk about allostasis if you want as well, uh, mental well-being, um, all these things. How do we understand really what mental health generally is and some of the components that are important for it? Yeah, I, I, of course, I don't think of mental health as a binary. You know, you have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. I, the reason the book is called The Balanced Brain is actually not because I think, you know, some brains need more balance, but actually <laughs> that in fact, all of our brains, every single person's brain is doing this kind of continuous balanced homeostasis like process to figure out and predict the world around it and the world inside of it. And that's sort of the way it uses information is to achieve that kind of balanced prediction. And so that's really what I think mental health is, is a kind of functionally useful prediction of yourself and the world around you. And sometimes those predictions can cause mental ill health, can cause disruptions in your mood and your perceptions of the world around you and your perceptions of the world inside of you. And that's when you might call something a mental illness. Even that I don't think is binary. I think it kind of depends whether and how much it's affecting someone's functioning. But in the book, I take this perspective that it says, you know, whether or not you have a mental health condition, There are various critical ingredients that shape our subjective sense of mental health. Um, One of those ingredients, I, I start the book off with the ingredient of pleasure. Very intuitive why pleasure would have something to do with mental health. But in fact, even just kind of tiny little measures of pleasure across a short period of time tend to correlate quite well with the way people have long-term estimates of well-being over a longer period of time. So those little pleasure moments can be quite significant in people's mental health and the way our brain sort of computes pleasure with the opioid system also shares things in common with mental health. But then I maybe dive into possibly some more surprising ingredients of mental health. Um, For example, I have a particular interest, as I said, in my lab 
um, in how the body contributes to mental health. And some of these signals are from things like the immune system and the role that inflammation plays in our mood and well-being. Some of these signals are from the gut. Some of my own work has dealt with the role of the stomach in an emotion like disgust, which is relevant to mental health in some contexts. Um, and then I probably go even further off piste and talk about the role of things like motivation in mental health, which I think is a kind of essentially neglected ingredient, but really critical for mental health. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're, you're fusing together a, a lot of things here, which is, I think, super important because I think a lot of the times people think of mental health as, I mean, I know you've heard this, right? It's, it's something in here in the brain, right? And it's not, I mean, it's definitely implicated. It's important, but it's, it's a kind of the whole, you know, gestalt of our experience right it's the whole it's the whole kind of thing there but that said how do you see the brain as central to understanding mental health so we have this idea of you know pain and pleasure we have what it's doing in our body both internally and what we're doing externally of course but where where does where does the brain come in as being central right i know many people use this analogy of oh it's you know it's a it's a motherboard for a computer or it's like a computer. And, and those analogies kind of break down and don't work so well. Sometimes I, I, don't, I don't really like those analogies. I mean, I understand them, but how do we see the brain as central? Um, and how do we see it connected with something like, you know, as you're kind of alluding to here is this embodied mind uh, component here. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily see the brain as a computer, although I do think it sort of performs computations, I guess. But what I see the brain as doing is it's receiving information, not just currently, but actually throughout its life via perception, perception of the outside world, perception of the inside world. And then it's learning from that information and continually updating its predictions about the future and also its behaviors in response to what it's learned about the world. So your kind of model of the world, your predictions of the world are affecting the way you interact with the world around you. And of course, also your sort of sense of your own condition. Um, and so I suppose I see the brain as this kind of integrative, predictive um, mechanism for navigating about the world. And that's, yeah, that's sort of where I see no matter what the cause, it's kind of, it's almost irrelevant. If the cause of, say, a dip in mental health is totally external, something really tough has happened in your environment, the effect it's going to have on you is filtered via the brain. It all happens via the brain. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As you're saying this, I'm thinking about kind of between mental health and, and the brain and, and kind of how, how things look at, you know, and kind of in the body, how much, this is a little philosophical, so, um, you know, just uh, bear with me, I guess, but how much of this is uh, loosely a subjective thing and an objective thing, right? So somebody could say, well, my mental health, you know, kind of feels fine, you know, or in the opposite, you know, someone that's, um, some of these people that kind of overreport their symptoms all the time where they're just like, I'm always terrible. And my mental health is always bad. Is it, how do we have a kind of, um, uh, a metric or a kind of yardstick of kind of sort of objectively, I mean, you're including a subjective or phenomenological experience of a person, of course, but how can we say, again, it's not the binary, but how do we understand some kind of contours around this, this idea of mental health based on what's being presented um, in, in the body, what's being presented 
um, you know, in terms of people's cognition and how that comes out with you know, speech or behavior, et cetera? How do we have some kind of yardstick? I think it's a really tough question. So some of my favorite experiments on mental health manage to integrate things at that completely phenomenological level, how someone's feeling at a given moment in time with things like objective behavioral measures, how likely they are to pursue or learn from rewards, maybe also with objective biological measures, things like their responses to a particular medication that changes the neurotransmitter or responses in particular regions of the brain. So I I do think that we need that kind of mapping between the subjective and the objective to Mm -hmm. fully understand mental health. I probably don't think the subjective is enough Sometimes our subjective views of the world are, are unhelpful. Yeah. We might not realize that. This happens actually in neurological conditions all the time, and we're sort of happy to accept that. So I think sometimes that can be the case in mental health conditions. Equally, I don't want to underplay the value and sort of centrality of subjective experiences. Sometimes something I like to think about a lot is in the context of conditions where you have a sort of measurable physical disruption, things like stroke, multiple sclerosis. You can measure the extent of the damage. That measurable extent of pathology is only weakly correlated with how disabled someone feels, Mm. which means that even in the case of physical health, the subjective sense of health is critical, sometimes Mm. even more critical than an objective physical measure. Mm, yeah, no, that's a very, very good point. And I wonder how much, you know, again, we're, we're able to sort of kind of bridge that gap, which is, again, uh, it's, a, it's a big challenge, of course. You talk about pain and pleasure, um, which is, uh, which was those, those two chapters were, were really uh, fascinating. Um, I guess tell us about, you can tell us about both of them, but specifically about pain. Uh, pain has this role of alarming us to things. And again, a little bit more abstractly, I feel pain is the thing that really, you know, ties us to kind of reality, right? Because sometimes when we feel pleasure, we feel happy, we can kind of say, well, it's, did, I, did that really happen? Or was it really as good as I thought it was? But when something hurts, it's like, no, that shit was terrible. I, I absolutely remember that. That was awful. Like that pain, that hurt, that loss, that whatever. And so I feel like it, it's a... It's a sort of an anchor to reality. It's not the only one, but um, uh, that's how I kind of see it sometimes. But, you know, you talk about it as alarming us to things, which I think it certainly does. But I, maybe I go a little further. <laughs> I think it anchors us to reality more than maybe something like uh, more hedonic pleasures or something like that. So maybe just tell us about pain and pleasure and, and this idea of pain alarming us to things. Yeah, I see that with pain. I mean, I think pain is a really useful signal. We need pain. You wouldn't want to live a life without pain. You wouldn't learn the most important things about what to avoid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, rare, rarely, rarely people can be born without sensations of pain. And it's an incredibly challenging life. You end up with horrible injuries, burns. You know, it's really, really useful to have pain signals essential. I also think that there's probably a lot of commonalities between just how adaptive it is to feel pain and how adaptive it is to feel negative emotional states. You also wouldn't want to go through life never, ever feeling bad. That's not mental health. 
Mental health is just an adaptive way of dealing with those moments of feeling bad, which we all have. And the adaptive way of dealing with pain is, of course, to learn how best to avoid it or to deal with it when you have to endure it. And Mm -hmm. I think similarly so with negative emotions. I think pain, I don't know, probably not all mental health researchers would agree with me on this, but (laughs) I think understanding pain is absolutely critical for understanding mental health. And I specifically think this is true for chronic pain because the circuits maintaining chronic pain actually have a lot more in common with depression than they have with nociception, contemporary Mm -hmm. pain that you might feel, you know, if you poked yourself. So I'm really interested in those circuits and the ways of sort of changing those circuits via something like the placebo effect, via effective drugs, because I think that can have overlap with at least some of the maintenance of chronic mood problems. Um, So yeah, I think chronic pain is really interesting. I talk about it in my book from a neurobiological perspective, sort of what's going on, what might underpin pleasurable responses like the opioid system, why opioid drugs and laughter have that overlapping effect on the opioid system, which I find fascinating, but also from a personal perspective as someone who's experienced chronic pain um, intermittently for a very long time, I've, I've experienced kind of personally really life-changing effects of expectations on chronic pain that are such a demonstration of the power of our brain's expectations on our our subjective health. Mm. So that's a kind of objective scientific point that I want to make, but also a personal point for me. Mm -hmm. No, no, I appreciate that. I, I I was, I was reading this, this bit in the book about, um, is it, is it also known as fibromyalgia? Is this correct? Right. Is this sometimes known or is that a similar condition? It's a similar condition. Yeah. With both of them, chronic pain or fibromyalgia, how do we, why is it so elusive to try to understand the mechanisms and maybe just, just chat a little bit more about this kind of the connection there about, uh, with depression, because <laughs> you, you can tell me what you think about this. I have this evolving, uh, uh, idea about depression because depression seems to be, mm, uh, quite expansive because it's, it's, uh, it presents differently. Of course, you can put 10 people in a room, you're going to you know, everyone can have major depressive disorder and it's going to have 10 presentations. Okay, fine. That gets at that polythetic kind of criteria of sorts. But the other component of this is um, how depression is, if you will, endogenous or seemingly endogenous to so many other types of conditions, right? You obviously see this with eating disorders. Um, You see this with uh, many autoimmune neurodegenerative disorders, you know, MS, Huntington, all these things, uh, Parkinson's. Um, you see it with, with so many uh, of those types of things. And I don't know if maybe there's a similar link here of depression with chronic pain or fibromyalgia. So, yeah, so it's just talk about that connection. I, I mean, depression is such a, it, again, it, it's like the more you, more you learn, the more you don't know anything, right? It's, it's like, what is this? Um, but yeah, talk about that connection, I guess, between those, those uh, circuits, I guess, or whatever. Yeah, I, I definitely sympathize with the idea that the more you learn, the more you sort of feel ignorant mm-hmm. in this domain. I feel that um, very much so with many of these conditions where it's sort of like every little discovery just sort of complicates the picture. Yeah. But the way I see it is that the overlap between depression and chronic pain and related disorders occurs not because those other disorders are, you know, quote unquote, all in your mind, but because depression is 
in your body and in your brain. And so too are those other disorders. And there are overlapping ways in which the maintenance of, say, extremely low mood, um, lack of pleasure, other kind of core symptoms of depression, there are ways in which those symptoms and their maintenance overlap with the maintenance of chronically painful inputs Mm. within the brain, chronically painful signals, let's say, within the brain. So I actually think this commonality, this physical commonality, because depression is many, many things, has many facets, is also the reason, one reason for the overlap between depression and other conditions. So, for example, depression and diabetes Mm. are incredibly comorbid. And you often see like very simplistic explanations for that. Um, For example, you know, perhaps people are sad and so it affects their appetite, you know, really unidirectional. But actually, I see it um, as that there may be common causes that can disrupt people's metabolic signaling and also the way that their brain learns about and guides them in the world. So there clearly is this kind of interrelationship between our, our cognition and what's happening in our mind and also these physical signals within our body. So I think that is kind of one one source of depression, one contributor to depression. And then similarly, I think these signals in pain-related regions of the brain are also overlapping with depression. Mm, yeah, that's, that's, that's very fascinating that the overlap here is what's so, so the question becomes then why, if which comes first, that's number one, hard to know. And then second is, okay, if depression is first, let's say, why is it being manifested physically in this person, in this organism, let's say, in this person's body as chronic pain or as, you know, something else? Um, and so it's, it's, it's strange how, how the overlap can look different in different presentations and, and why. And, and yeah, there's more questions, I guess, than answers. So. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I guess, you know, the sort of neatest explanation would be to say something like, oh, well, you know, depression is so many different things. It's so heterogeneous that, you know, maybe there's some types of depression that are a little bit closer to some physical conditions and overlap with them and other types that overlap more with other conditions. I think there's a degree of that that's true. But then there's also a degree, I think, really of just common risk for poor mental and physical health. And those risk factors involve lots of causes, social causes, genetic causes, and then the way those causes affect the brain. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I mean, there's, there's, people can see that, you know, things are multivariate and they're complicated. Nothing's a kind of black and white binary. Since we're on depression, you mentioned uh, something like anhedonia, which is, I, I mean, oh my goodness, that is such a difficult symptom for people and difficult to treat. <laughs> Um, how do we under, so anhedonia is, is this idea of, um, the symptom common depression of not usually taking pleasure in things you normally take pleasure in. So, you know, if, if I like watching, um, you know, tennis, uh, you know, and, and playing tennis and things about tennis and all of a sudden I, I don't anymore, I just don't have an interest. I don't want, or I, I, I watch it, but I'm not really getting anything out of it or, you know, and there's no reason for that. Um, that's one example. I'm, there's better examples, I'm sure, but. How do you explain anhedonia and, and ways in which it kind of functions and works and, and ideas of how to, you know, kind of navigate this? Because it's a, most people, when they think of depression, they think of I'm sad or I'm crying or whatever. Um, but you can, I mean, diagnostically, you can have depression and not feel sad. You don't have to have depressed mood. You can have anhedonia. It has to be one of the two. 
Um, so anhedonia is actually what I think comes up a lot. It's this kind of feeling very, you know, stuck. It's this kind of feeling very like, uh, kind of, you know, dulled, uh, things like that. Um, but how do you, how do you understand anhedonia and, and some of how it works? So I'm really interested in anhedonia, lots of different facets of it. As you say, it's one of the core symptoms of depression, just as important as low mood doesn't get kind of understood as well as low mood also doesn't get treated as yeah. well as low mood. Literally, it is not as well treated by our effective treatments. Um, it's often, you know, people might find a response of their mood of other symptoms of depression and their anhedonia to some degree can remain. So that's a kind of worry of mine. Sometimes people with particularly high anhedonia are also treatment resistant. Yeah, so yeah. it's maybe a kind of population that we have to be particularularly looking out for and, and trying to understand a little bit better. So I'm interested and, and in, and yeah, go sorry, on, yeah. And I'll just say on that real quick is that I see that more than depressed mood personally. Like, I, I, I mean, I see depressed mood or low mood or sadness, but I see a lot of anhedonia, a lot. And I think sometimes that's maybe what people say is a kind of functional depression. I, I don't really like that term, but this whole idea of, yeah, I can go to work. Yeah, I can do things, whatever. I'm not, you know, at home, I'm, you know, crying my eyes out or I'm super sad or something. And and yes, I would agree with that. I think that it's just completely untreated. But I, even though it's the most untreated, I see it as probably more of a common occurrence uh, clinically than sad, sadness or, or low mood. Per personally, that's a kind of a, a anecdotal thing, but uh, I see really it a lot more. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting <clears throat> to hear. Mm -hmm. So I think because I think anhedonia is so central, that's maybe one of the reasons why I started my book talking about hedonia and pleasurable responses, because I do think those sort of my, that minutia, that kind of pleasurable minutia actually adds up and can be quite significant. But actually in anhedonia, there are very few studies showing genuine differences in kind of immediate pleasurable responses in depression. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Possibly something closer to anticipation of a pleasurable response and or your ability to learn from rewarding responses. And together, these affect kind of your motivation to pursue something potentially rewarding, your sort of retroactively thinking about whether or not you enjoyed it. So, and, and also to some degree, then that has a, um, like a, a kind of additive effect because then you start to experience fewer pleasurable things. So it mm. can kind of snowball, right? You're not mm. learning as much from them. Um, perhaps you're not expecting them as much. You're not pursuing them as much. And then you're just literally not experiencing them as mm. frequently as someone who isn't depressed. So it's, it can kind of augment quite quickly and color your perception of the world around you, um, as you can imagine, because this affects, mm -hmm. you know, something like your ability to learn from rewards affects even the most low level perceptions, your perception of how was your commute today? How was your day yesterday? How was that interaction you just had with your colleague? We're constantly kind of estimating the valence of things. Mm -hmm. And if you have disruptions in that estimation, then that mm. can result in quite profoundly disabling symptoms. A small adjustment can have quite a big effect. So neurobiologically, it's also really interesting. Mm. So anhedonia is underpinned by a few different systems, but the one I'll focus on right now is the dopamine system for a couple different reasons. So the dopamine system um, has several functions in the brain. One of them underpins 
our ability to learn from things that are unexpectedly good. This prediction error learning that I talk about in the book, where we have dopamine release when things are unexpectedly better than what we thought would happen. This is a really important mechanism for how our brain learns about positive and negative things in the world and how to get positive things. So this is one of the mechanisms that may underpin anhedonia. Hmm. But even within that process, there are actually different ingredients that could cause that disruption. For example, sensitivity to the reward itself or how quickly you learn about a series of rewards. And so that's something we're still really trying to disentangle because it's not necessarily the same thing. They're not necessarily affected by the same treatments. And then the other thing I'll say about anhedonia, which also relates to dopamine, comes back to that kind of hidden ingredient of motivation that I think is particularly important, which is that our dopamine system also has this role in what we call wanting as opposed to liking. Sort of liking is a little bit closer closer to that pleasure response. But wanting is this motivation or drive for something that you that you feel you need. It's what you maybe think of when you think of addiction, something that maintains addiction, but it's also really positive. It's something that sustains us going about our life, feeling motivated to, to endure effortful things, you know, potentially boring things for something that might be rewarding. So dopamine is also very important in that decision, that decision to expend effort, to be motivated for reward. And I also think that's an aspect of the disruption that occurs in anhedonia. There's a lot of things there. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Um, so I guess real quick, just as a footnote, you said dopamine. The dopamine system was one of one of many. You can just what are the other systems? I guess uh, implicated here. You don't have to go into them. What are the other ones? I guess implicated with anhedonia here. So in anhedonia, <laughs> hedonia in general, you can think of kind of. Uh, shorter-term pleasure responses underpinned by the opioid system. I think that may be less central, but maybe not entirely irrelevant. So I think it, it may have a role to play. And then there are aspects of this learning and perception of positive and negative things in the environment system that that are underpinned by serotonin. So we also have mm. to think about serotonin. We actually also have to think about a chemical I don't even um tend to spend much time on in my book, but is really important in the field today called noradrenaline, mm. um, which has to do with computing perhaps the uncertainty of the environment around you. So mm. all of these brain chemicals, which are doing slightly different things in different bits of the brain, are helping us figure out what has just happened to me? Is it good or bad? Do I want it again? How do I get it again? Am I motivated to get it again? And those kind of central decision-making processes that underpin our everyday life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 all these systems are, are, are interesting for this. Okay. So <clears throat> if, so motivation is another big one here for, 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 um, Patients that are depressed, I'm, again, many people, they feel unmotivated. So this connection here is interesting. Um, the question I have about, about this bit of it is, if there's a connection with learning, and I guess you could say some type of memory here for um, the responses for, for people that have, you know, a lack of hedonia or, or, or diminished hedonia. How, what is the, <clears throat> I am, so I am in no way a behaviorist. 
I'm no way a behaviorist, right? I think there's a valuable contribution historically and maybe even for certain populations currently. Um, but what would be the value of some uh, behavior, behaviorist uh, interventions if it is a learning and sort of memory problem? Because this seems like a, like a kind of pure reinforcement thing, right? If you can train yeah. the brain to learn or to, to have a, a better or improved reinforcement, is it possible to, 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 to learn uh, ways of anticipating or, or expecting a kind of you know, particular reward from a context or situation? Or is it something more, um, you know, neurochemical that's beyond, you know, kind of external behavioral intervention? What, what, what do you think about that piece? No, on the contrary, I absolutely think it's accessible via therapy. And in fact, mm. I think it's already happening mm. via different kinds of therapies. So it's interesting about, you know, it's not that I think all of depression is reinforcement learning. That's highly oversimplified, yeah, yeah. obviously not the case. Mm-hmm. But I do think this kind of pure behaviorist model can give us access into some of these systems that then have sort of higher level meaning and affective states for us. Mm -hmm. So it's not that that's all there is, but it is that I think that's like one route in, one route kind of towards depression, but also one route out of depression. So you see this in behavioral interventions, this kind of reinforcement learning process essential in things like exposure therapy. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I do think there's some untapped potential there where if you could kind of augment that learning process, perhaps with a pharmacological treatment, that's Mm -hmm. something that's being tested in some animal and human studies, that could be really a way to use what we know about that learning process to improve the therapy's effectiveness um, in people maybe who wouldn't respond to it normally. Um, But even in other types of therapy, so I've done studies taking this kind of reinforcement learning approach, um, but combining it with um, therapeutic effects of, for example, cognitive therapies, for example, cognitive distancing. So that was an interest of mine a couple of years ago. And we spent a little while doing a project where people practiced sort of distancing themselves from immediate reactions to, um, to outcomes in a reinforcement learning context, where then we could sort of decouple these signals and show how that quite abstract thing, distancing yourself from your reactions, had effects both on your learning about rewards, but also on your emotions Mm. um, as tied to that learning about rewards. So it's a kind of, it's a system where I think behavior is not everything, but is kind of inextricable and Mm. maybe also a way in. Yeah, that's, that's very, very important. I think that that's, yeah, there's, there's, there's much to, it sounds like there's much to still kind of uncover there, which is really fascinating. And then I guess the last part of what you had said was you mentioned some aspect that you kind of alluded to like addiction and stuff. And I always think of um, addiction is interesting. We don't have to go off on this, of course, but um, what do you think about this idea? I remember talking about this with, uh, with Andy Clark. We, we talked about the reward prediction error and um, this idea of, of seeing instead of, yes, this is a reward. If instead of something like, Mm, reward has a kind of um, almost like a moralizing component to it that's implicit to it, which I don't really like. What if it was something more of like a, a, a salience or like a kind of internal hierarchy of this is more salient for me to get? Because uh, a lot of the times they're not uh, people that have addictions. They're not trying to get the reward if they're doing it continuously over and over and over and over. Sometimes it's a lot of is 
there's a kind of need of sorts that's a kind of broken loop here. So if you have this kind of error in reward or prediction, wouldn't it be a better conceptually uh, to see it as a kind of salience or a hierarchy as opposed to just reward or, or something else like that more, more kind of um, in a binary? What, what do you think about this? Yeah, I agree with you in that I think sort of every outcome, it's the way we process it is modified by its salience as well as its valence. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, the salience can kind of like overpower it. It's also, by the way, modified by how certain we are of our expectation being tied with that outcome. If it's very uncertain, we don't, if it's like very randomly paired with it, we wouldn't learn from it. And in the context of addiction, well, I quite like George Koob's theory that actually, you know, maybe in the beginning, it's a rewarding state, mm-hmm. a kind of desire for a rewarding state, but that's not what maintains addiction. Uh-huh. The maintenance of addiction comes from this kind of drive to relieve the mm. horribly negative state mm. of not having a drug once you've been become dependent on it. And so I, I, and I think that kind of marries with some subjective anecdotes of what it feels like to be addicted to a drug. Not so, not that you like love it and just want to feel that great feeling again, but actually that you feel mm-hmm. horrible without it and you want to relieve yeah. that feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that kind of tracks kind of where, where I'm seeing it as well. So real quick, we'll move to, to emotions and proper in a minute. Um, but uh, just pleasure, I mean, we've, we've been talking about it and alluding to it, but uh, you talk about pleasure in the brain and you kind of open with that. Uh, you, one thing I want to ask about this is, so the orbital frontal cortex is, is a fascinating part of, of, the, of the brain, um, definitely in, in the frontal area. And there's a lot of things I always see um, orbital frontal as, I mean, does many things, but many, one of the primary things is this kind of social cognition or this social awareness of things. And it does many other parts. How do you see these hedonic uh, hot spots, if you will, uh, and what's the role of the orbital frontal cortex in understanding pleasure and hedonia and things like that? Well, really interesting question. So when I dove into this world of sort of hot spots and cold spots in the mm-hmm. brain, it was really fun because the idea is really that we have lots of areas in the brain that correlate with feeling good, feeling pleasure, but actually very few that can directly cause pleasure. Like Mm. if you stimulate Mm. them, someone Mm. would feel pleasure. And so, you know, why we have these regions and the functional role of these regions, I think is a a kind of unexplored mystery. And of course, as I talk about, we also have the reverse. We have these cold spot regions where if stimulated, you would feel really unpleasant. Yeah. So I think, you know, the orbitofrontal cortex does have many different roles. And as you say, some are in these kind of social rewards, social pleasures. And I think this overlap between very, um, very ancient homeostatic reward systems and social reward systems is, is really fascinating. Kind of looking at relief from hunger, relief from thirst, mm. and the overlap between that and relief from, for example, loneliness. There's been some really excellent work in that domain. Mm. Um, and so I think that's really interesting that the social drive is kind of like a homeostatic drive as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting about, I, I can I can kind of make sense because obviously if you look evol- from an evolutionary perspective, obviously we are social mammals, uh, but for humans, it's kind of like on steroids, right? As a, <laughs> we're very, we're like uber social. 
Um, although, you know, maybe maybe the orcas and the and the dolphins give us a run for our money, and we just can't really uh, measure it and test it. Who, who's to say, right? But um, nevertheless, we're very social as as a, as, a, as a Homo sapiens, and um, and the parts of the brain uh, that develop uh, or develop more outside our you know primate cousins. I think are in these areas in, in the, in the frontal cortex and I mean, different parts of the brain. And so that would, that kind of tracks of how much the social component of many of these uh, aspects, especially with pleasure and hedonia is, is uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, so, okay, let's, let's talk about emotions. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the big, big mystery that keeps evolving of sorts. Um, <clears throat> so you'll be familiar with, uh, you know, the, the universalist approach and the social construction approach and all of these kind of models. And, um, I've, I've talked to many of those different folks here on the podcast. Um, not at the same time, unfortunately, that would be so much fun. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I kind of have my view, uh, if you can believe it, I have a sort of middle view, if you, if you will. Oh, what's your view? <laughs> so my view is, um, <laughs> so I, I like the heuristic. I recognize that emotions can be a kind of heuristic. They're, they are of sorts a human creation. I, I get that. We, we put labels on things and we name them and okay, that's fine. And yes, they are a sort of construction for people. I, I, I'm fine with that. I just think people make the same constructions. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and like, what a weird coincidence, you know, right. that across really disparate cultures. Right. <laughs> Right, right, right. So again, I don't, I don't, I don't do the, the research or have probably the brain power to do all the neuroscience, but I do think that folks that I have talked to that do, I do think something like, uh, if you want to conceptualize hunger as an emotion, there's people debate this. I think there's a, a good place for that. I think you can find physiological, physiological substrates of where hunger activates and it, and it happens and it happens with all humans uh, and probably many organisms. Um, so you know, and as, as an emotion, I think you could kind of tie that in with other things, you know, disgust could probably be in there. Um, but I think of things like pride, which is, you know, cross-culturally has a lot of, um, uh, manifestations, but I think of something like just as a simple example, example I kind of use is if I go to a funeral, um, you can have different expressions of sadness, right? You could have no crying. You could have weeping. You could have laughter in some ways. Some people feel very anxious in awkward moments or, or really tough moments. You could have, I mean, there's so many different expressions. But if you were to, if you were to, you know, give everybody a survey at a funeral and were to say, even if you were estranged from this person, even if you hated this person, each person is going to have some experience of what it means to have loss and some experience of that. And again, the experience is going to have difference, obviously, because people are different. But I think in the abstract, people are in mourning. They have lost something. Someone is there and then they're gone and they feel something. And I think that there's enough similarity for people to say, yes, this is not a good feeling. Uh, this doesn't have a positive valence. And yeah, I might feel more of this or I may feel more of this and I might call it something different and I might express it different. But I think the subjective or, if you will, phenomenological experience is going to be in the same zip code. It's going to be in the same universe. So for me, it's like, okay, yes, you know, 
we, we call it a thing. Okay. We understand that that's a human creation. Just like, you know, the color red is a human creation of sorts, right? Like I get it. I get it. But I do think that there are some, uh, I think there are more complicated emotions like, um, uh, shame, uh, uh, is really complicated. Um, and I think it might look different. And I think also shame is really hard because you have to have different, you have to have a, you have to have a kind of agreed upon definition of the self and what that means. And is it the total self or is it just a part of yourself? And this complicated, but, but I think maybe for other kinds of emotions, uh, I would say, yeah, there's probably a universal experience, but I don't think it's the same. I know that sounds like an oxymoron with those two words in that sentence, but so, and I'm not trying to necessarily find the middle way and just pair two kinds of things. I I really do see kind of both sides of it. And I, I don't think one, cancels the other one out necessarily. So that's kind of my yeah, jumbled view I'm on of it. a similar page. I'm not a full constructionist because I do think they're kind of um, like physical, physiological, and also neural commonalities of emotions uh-huh. that just occur independently of exposure to kind of knowledge of that emotions, even sometimes awareness of that emotion. Mm. Um, So I think, you know, there can be pairings between physiological states and our reactions to that states that don't even have to go through necessarily conscious experience of an emotion. You just know, oh, I want to avoid that or, oh, I really liked that particular Mm -hmm. sensation. So you don't even necessarily need to kind of introspect label like that process is is constructed, but isn't actually necessary sometimes to Mm. the whole purpose of an emotion. And then, yeah, I'm probably in the camp that would label hunger something like an emotion or at least almost entirely overlapping in its mechanisms in that it's a sort of subjective detection of an internal state that we map on to then certain behaviors and and Mm -hmm. things like that. So I, yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess just a a bit here on this is how do you see um, the, the role of interoception and exteroception so again, for listeners, interoception is your body telling you what's happening in your body. Exteroception is your body telling you what's happening outside your body. How do you see the role uh, of both of those, um, I guess from a physiological perspective of telling us something that's going on and how that loads or maps onto, uh, you know, kind of our emotional states, if you will? Yeah, so I see it in kind of two ways that, you know, obviously we can observe something in the outside world that then affects our emotions. We can feel something in our inside world that then affects our emotions. The two aren't independent. They can interact. But also, it only affects our emotions via sort of our brain's expectation and interpretation of what those things are. So that's really how I see the role of interception, for example, as a kind of bi-directional pathway where changes in in peripheral physiological systems, changes in our heartbeat, in our blood pressure, in our stomach, in many, many different systems, inflammatory system, they're continuously being communicated to the brain. So it's not like when you feel, when you intercept, you feel emotion. No, your brain is constantly receiving these signals. And sometimes they penetrate or not to different degrees. And we map those signals on to emotions um, to different degrees. And so I think, you know, the really interesting part there is to think about the filter itself. You know, what is it 
that penetrates our consciousness? What is it that then gets mapped to something negative or something positive? And that is really this role of interception, not as just a receiver Mm. of signals, which the brain is doing, although it's messy, but actually as an interpreter of those signals. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, I'll I'll ask you in a bit about, I mean, you've talked about it now and you've talked about it in the book as well about, you know, predictive processing, which is, you know, very... Uh, it's having its moments, which is, which is, I think, nice. I mean, I think it's, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. So I'll ask you about that in a minute, about the interpretation piece of it. But um, briefly, tell me about uh, gut microbiome. Again, this is another thing that, you know, people kind of get excited about. And then there's like a million kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, books and articles about this and all this stuff and gut health. And, um, you know, there's a lot of wild stuff about the vagus nerve and all these things. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's all these things, but what, what is your kind of position on the importance of the gut microbiome? Uh, you talked about inflammation, how that affects our mood. Um, but kind of just tell us sort of, um, uh, help us sift through kind of the, the elements as it connects to mental health at the very least of the gut microbiome and, and what's not kind of true about it that sometimes people kind of get maybe overexcited about? Yeah, I talk about the gut microbiome right after talking about inflammation. Mm. And that was quite deliberate because when it comes to inflammation, I think the best evidence suggests there can be a causal role of heightened inflammation in worse mental health. That means that, yes, you can look epidemiologically and people with worse mental health also have higher inflammation, but who knows? That could be for many reasons. If you acutely increase someone's inflammation, which you can do with a vaccine, for example, many people will then have either mood changes or changes in kind of brain circuits, cognitive circuits that affect mental health. So I think there truly is, at least for some people, a very clear causal mapping between some types of inflammation and mental health. I don't think there is as clear a mapping with the gut microbiome. That doesn't mean there's none. So in animal studies, there is causal evidence, like I've described, where if you disrupt the gut microbiome, you can disrupt anxiety-like behavior. And that's what people got super excited about. And me too. I think it's really exciting Mm -hmm. that that's true. But the way that these studies are done in animals are such unique setups these are animals living in germ-free environments. They're all genetically identical. They, they, they have a life that is unfathomable to our lives as humans in our kind of microbiome world, in our bacterial world. It's so different. So what I take away from that is, you know, maybe it's different in humans. Maybe they exi- the effects exist, but are just much, much smaller. Because when similar studies have been done in humans, results are mixed. And I think that's not the case if you look at epidemiological studies where you can see sort of group-wise differences. Someone who experiences uh, an anxiety disorder may have disruptions in their gut microbiome. But why? Maybe because part of their anxiety disorder means that they eat differently and Mm. that changes their gut microbiome. Mm. So if there's something in between bullish and bearish, that's what I am on the gut microbiome. I think it's really fascinating. I think it does have something interesting to tell us about gut health. I think whether it has something independently interesting to tell us about mental health, uh, the jury's still out. 
But of course, from my perspective, I think gut health is important in mental health. Yeah. So if somebody takes some kind of supplement to enhance the diversity of their microbiome, it helps with their gut symptoms and then they have better mental health. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I would like to know why, you know, that cause is still very important. Yeah, yeah. Anybody that's getting really excited about <clears throat> uh, studies with mice or rats in a lab is, you know, it's like, okay, I mean, that's a lot of potential, but you no, know, I kind of see this as kind of, again, I'm not trying to make a false dichotomy, but, you know, something could be efficacious, but it doesn't mean it's effective. And as you know, eff- effectiveness studies are super hard to do because you have so many, um, you know, threats from external validity and things like that. So it's like, okay, how do you factor that in? How do you replicate it? How, you know, it, it takes a while, especially for things that can be very um, difficult to, to kind of measure. Um, so I, I think. Yeah. My caution in animal studies also comes, you know, from other fields. If you look yeah, at yeah. dementia treatments, there's mm-hmm. this very sad quote that I heard from a, uh, it was, I think a relative of a patient with dementia a couple of years ago. And she said, you know, the mice keep getting better from these drugs but my husband keeps getting worse. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's quite a, quite a sobering uh, quote. And yeah, I, I would agree. I think that that's, again, people don't live in, in factories or they don't live in labs. They don't, you know, so it's, we're exposed to a lot of different things. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I think we have to be very kind of tenuous in our, our excitement of sorts. So tell me really quick about, we've mentioned at different points, so you don't have to go on with it, but again, just to kind of, corrective here uh i'll have people colloquially tell me about you know well it's a it's a dopamine rush it's a dopamine hit it's all these things right and um you know i'm not i'm not that asshole that corrects people or whatever however i do cringe a little i get very annoyed uh, so i I try not to say too much all the time but yes the you know dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain there is a reward system with dopamine those things are real and they exist and you do get you could get some kind of uh, pleasure from it, but kind of, uh, educates, uh, us on what a dopamine itself is the reward system and what it is not and how there are many different things that the dopamine reward system is doing, not just this one unitary kind of thing. I also often have to try not to be an asshole in situations <laughs> like that. I think I just, I don't correct people. It, it's just because I know what it means culturally, mm-hmm. you know, like linguistically, uh, semantically, I get what they mean yeah. by a dopamine rush. I also think it is definitely, I mean, it's almost certainly not dopamine that they're talking about. I can't access their personal experiences. <laughs> but I think what people say when they feel that rush, if anything, it might be an opioid rush. (laughs) It might be a kind of endogenous, innate opioidergic response to something that they really like. Mm -hmm. What dopamine feels like is probably not nice in that way. It's probably not pleasurable in that way. This is that pleasure versus wanting distinction. Mm -hmm. So it might help you learn what you might pursue in the future, but that's not really because it feels nice. That's because it is a learning signal to help you pair things and motivate you maybe to pursue the thing that predicts 
that in the future. Um, or it might sort of be that baseline wanting that you can see in, for example, dopaminergic drugs, where people have a desire for them without necessarily experiencing pleasure. Um, in my book, I talk about some anecdotal experiences of people taking dopaminergic drugs. And it's not that it's fun for them. It's not like they sort of love the feeling. It's that it's sort of Moorish. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's that's really the dopamine rush. When you just kind of want something, even if you don't like it, you just have this kind of innate desire for more. So, yeah, that's what I would say about the reward system and dopamine. I also think that sometimes these like dopamine detoxes, et cetera, really irk me because the central role of dopamine in another system is to help us move. Mm. Boy, would you not want to detox from dopamine. And if you said this to a patient with Parkinson's disease, I mean, I never would. It would be purely insulting because they have a profound deficit in in dopamine and then they cannot initiate Mm -hmm. movement. It's Mm -hmm. enormously disabling and also it can cause apathy and other kinds Mm -hmm. of problems. So you you don't want less dopamine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously kind of culturally and things like that, people mean, you know, it's kind of, you know, uh, instant gratification, you know, limited self-control. And and that's fine. I mean, I understand that, but it's not, <laughs> I don't know how people kind of conceptualize the brain of this kind of, you know, there's like, uh, there's a door from, it gets you from one room A and then you walk over to room B and that's how it works. Like the brain is like not that way in, in many regards. It's, you know, there could be pieces or components, but more like a labyrinth. I haven't even named all the functions of dopamine in some bits. It supports lactation. Like you just, I mean, don't, yeah. don't, don't mess with dopamine. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, I totally agree. So just real quick, again, that's uh, another footnote here. So you talk about it in the book and you talked about it a bit here, I guess just kind of um, before we go into some of the other topics, Bayesian brain, predictive processing, all these things having their moment. Uh, how much do you um, kind of like, I guess I don't say officially, but do you adopt that kind of approach or are you just kind of having some overlap with it that could be helpful? Um, I I was lucky enough to talk with Carl Friston for three hours on the podcast a couple of years ago. Uh, I understood like 10% of it cause he's a genius. Um, <laughs> and I mentioned Andy Clark and a few other people that have done predictive processing kind of proper. Um, I don't know. Where do you see like kind of your, um, where you do your science and your research of, uh, with mental health, uh, kind of proper and specifically and how much does having a understanding of a Bayesian brain or predictive processing approach help to understand it or, or, or not, or pieces of it. Where, where do you see it? I I think, and certainly my work and my book is within the predictive processing framework. Mm. That really is the way that I think about how we construct our sense of mental health, where that subjective sense comes from. It's also where I think our sense of physical health comes from. So this is probably the way, the, the kind of most informative theory that has informed how I think about perception, extraception, interception. Mm. Um, and our, so, so, so yes, I am definitely within that model. There are probably people who are, you know, maybe more extreme than me about exact implications oh. of that model, but I, I am, I am within it. Yeah. Okay. 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 Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, sometimes I think people are taking some ideas and some people are very much using the framework. So sometimes it's, 
not to put people in a box, of course, but it's nice to know, like, okay, it's a kind of language of sorts that people kind of understand of saying, okay, this kind of, you know, makes sense of there's a similar language when talking about these things. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Some of it is, uh, you know, scientific framework that I use in my lab that kind of informs the types of questions that we ask, the way we ask questions, the reason that we don't just think of the brain as a kind of receiver, you know, so I think some of it just really informs the, the ways that my experiments work. And then some of it is also, you know, within the context of when I write and when I speak about science, this mm-hmm. is really what I think is one of the most important messages that I want to convey is kind of how this sense of mental health comes about and why things that we think of as, you know, purely purely mental, like mm-hmm. psychological therapy, placebo is actually or placebo are actually physical processes that we can kind of study at the level of the brain. And that's because we can study expectations and predictions at the level of the brain. So if that's what you're affecting via your therapy, via a placebo drug, then you're affecting the brain. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I I, I agree. Okay. So tell us about placebos. Um, Placebos are interesting. They have an interesting history as well. Uh, I guess uh, you can reference history if you want, but more, more, more acutely, what is the kind of current state of how we understand placebos uh, within the, I mean, there's placebo generally within, within uh, uh, scientific study, but I, I'm meaning it more for, for uh, studies within mental health broadly. Um, yeah. What are they? How do they work? Why do we use them? Um, and you can, you can, if you want give the example of um, homeopathy, which is, Another frustrating thing. So, uh, yeah, tell us about placebos. <laughs> so if I think people might have jumped the gun a tiny bit on the microbiome, <laughs> I think people have not reacted enough to our incredible placebo work, our in the neuroscientific sense yeah. work that was done pre my career usually. So this work shows that the placebo effect is so powerful, it can activate the same brain networks as active drugs. It can diminish the effect of an active drug that we know works if you think it's a placebo. It can enhance the effect of an active drug if you both expect a drug and you get one. So no matter whether you think you're getting a real treatment or not, you're actually always getting placebo because your expectations are always modifying your physical and mental reactions to a to a particular drug. I think it's kind of the key into that subjective sense of health thing that I was talking about, the difference between, you know, what a what the objective pathology is and what your subjective sense of disability is. That that gap is the placebo effect, or at least the placebo effect is a way to understand that gap. So I think placebos are are really powerful. Sort of, I, I support suggestions that open label placebos could even be useful clinically. So that means when you know you're taking a placebo and there's data to suggest that even those drugs are helpful. So a sugar pill, when you're told you're about to take a placebo, but you still get it out of a packet, you take your placebo, those can still have effects on some types of symptoms. So I think we may be kind of underusing 
placebos. Um, and then I also think there maybe is a little neglect of nocebo, which is such a cool phenomenon um, that I want everyone to know about if you don't already know about it. So the example that I'll give will be vaccine reactions. Mm -hmm. So um, when you do a vaccine trial, a COVID trial, something like that, you have to report all side effects not just side effects to the vaccine, but also side effects to the placebo. Mm -hmm. And then you report them. And that's a really rich data set because you have to report if somebody has something incidental, something that happens outside of it, but also it's the effects that people have because they're anticipating a possible side effect of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I would argue actually that those effects themselves can sometimes be a little contagious. Once you know what possible side effect to expect, your brain can unconsciously sometimes engender that side effect. So your expectations about positive effects of a drug can be beneficial, but your expectations about potential side effects can be really unhelpful. So if I wanted to speak about other people, I could speak about, for example, those videos that went viral of people having, you know, very unusual, probably not related to the vaccine, COVID, post-COVID mm -hmm. vaccine mm -hmm. side mm -hmm. effects. Yeah. But I could also actually speak about myself. So early in the COVID pandemic, I was a vaccinator. I was giving people COVID vaccines. But at the time, at least in the UK, my age group weren't allowed vaccines. So I was doing it and I wasn't vaccinated yet. And then one day there was a leftover vaccine at the end of the day. So they said, oh, do you want it? And I was like, yes. So I got my vaccine, but I had spent all day vaccinating people and telling them every single person, hundreds and hundreds of times, what side effects they might experience. And when I tell you my side effects to that vaccine were ridiculous. I had, you know, I was so weak and shivery and I had pain. And some of that was probably the inflammation from the vaccine. And some of that was probably the nocebo response. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that's very interesting. So I get two things here. I feel like sometimes, even, even myself at different points, when people see or when they hear placebo, they think fake and then there's the real treatment, right? That's the fake. But that's not quite, that's a false dichotomy. That's not exactly what it is. Of course, if you take, give somebody a sugar pill, and you give somebody, you know, an actual uh, prescribed drug. It, it, yes, it's not the prescribed drug, but it's not that there isn't an impact or an effect. So that's one thing, this kind of mm -hmm. fake real kind of dichotomy. But the second thing is also. <laughs> with with placebo drugs or placebo of any sort treatments. Is the anticipation enough where we're just creating or we're making up effects in our brain like we're just like is is and and if you do that strong enough do you actually have a, a physical response which kind of leads to this kind of it starts to get into this like i feel like it could be this kind of woo kind of thing of like well you your your mind has power over your body and if you really think hard enough you can really have this or this which I don't think it's anything of what you're saying, but I think that I could, I could, I could anticipate some people maybe listening to this and saying, well, I, I mean, I heard it here. Like, you know, like, yeah, even if there's nothing in it, like if you just think it, you're going to have a response and that's the power of the mind over the body. Like, I mean, you could go really far off with this. So yeah. Is it, 
what is that fake real kind of dichotomy? And what is this kind of power over mind idea of sorts? Yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. So I do think the fake real dichotomy is unhelpful. They're both real, but they're doing different things. And I think it's quite similar to how you might think about, you know, different origins of a disability. I don't think that some physical disabilities are fake because they originate from more cognitive or psychological origins, depending on the physical disability. I just think they have different physical origins. It's coming from different processes. So a placebo effect is doing something. It's just doing it via the kind of expectation networks in your brain. Mm -hmm. And so to that end, I don't think placebos can do everything. Mm -hmm. There's a very limited range in which they work. And that range I think is quite important because it's a kind of subjective sense of health. They're not working to fix a broken bone. You know, they're not working like an antibiotic. They're not working at that physical level. They're working on that added gap level that I'm talking about, your physical subjective sense of health. So that can mean they could be useful in the context of a kind of, you know, visible physical problem, but maybe as well as something to fix that visible physical problem. And, and, and this idea about power over mind kind of thing. I mean, what do you, what do you think about, how do you see, like in the example you gave, right? Like you're giving people, you know, hundreds of people, you're saying the same thing over, over and over and over. I mean, before you even finished the story, I was like, yeah, if I was in that position and I get a vaccine, I'd be like, I'm having all of the worst symptoms. Like, oh, this is so bad. Like, and in reality, if I didn't do any of that, I probably would have been like, oh, yeah, like, you know, have some symptoms, but, you know, it's, it's not so bad or whatever. Maybe not. But how, how much of that impact do we have where we're, our mind is in that space? And then it's just like, OK, now I'm, I'm expecting this to happen. And almost like if it doesn't happen, it must happen because <laughs> I just did all of this stuff. How much of that, like what, what's the like limits of that or how much how much how much power can we prescribe, I guess, to our mind of, of, of how much it can manage or control things? Yeah. I mean, you're right that I don't want to, I'm not a kind of, (laughs) clearly, I don't think there's this sort of amazing ability of the mind to change everything about your, your body, especially I would say not the conscious mind. If I were sitting there and, and I, I, I have no idea if it occurred to me or not because I had a high fever, but if it had occurred to me, I'm only feeling this way because I was talking about it all day. It probably did occur to me because the kind of research I do, it wouldn't have done anything. So I could have said with my mind, oh no, 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 just ignore what you were saying, et cetera. And it would have done absolutely bloody nothing. So I do think that there is a kind of contribution of these expectations and beliefs, et cetera. But I actually think we're very bad at consciously changing them ourselves. Mm. Something like certain types of therapeutic processes, they can slowly, slowly over time change people's beliefs, I think, when they work. Mm -hmm. But you just sort of telling yourself, no, 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 no. It's like, (laughs) no, it's (laughs) not not going to work. No, it's not. It's not effective. Uh, Just a bit of this. So homeopathy, I mean, I mean, is there anything, I mean, tell us about this. I mean, is there anything in it? I mean, people really like it. I I don't, I mean, to remind listeners what it is and then just like, what's the kind of limits of what it could be and what it is. I mean, I I don't really believe in any of it, but but that's just I am so torn about homeopathy. 
Um, not whether or not it does what it says on the tin. It absolutely doesn't. It's a placebo. <laughs> but whether or not we need to be sort of like regulating people's use of homeopathy. So in the UK, there's a big debate because, of course, our, our health system is nationalized. Yeah. So should we be paying for people to have access to homeopathy? And I feel very torn about it because I do think that there's a level at which homeopathy is dangerous. And that level is when it's suggested to be used for conditions that absolutely and utterly need other kinds of medical yeah. interventions, chemotherapy, et cetera. But then I, I can't help but acknowledge that there is a huge group of patients who are not satisfied with what traditional healthcare can give them, probably partially because of that disparity between kind of physical pathology and subjective sense of well-being. And then I guess I do see a utility of homeopathy in terms of improving someone's subjective sense of health. That's why people think it can work miracles, because it can dramatically affect your subjective sense of health as a placebo, functioning as a placebo. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I'm a little bit I'm, I'm probably less torn about it than you are, but I mean, I don't know. I, I just keep thinking about that whole like water memory thing, right? Where it's like, no matter how much the water changes or whatever, um, it still has some memory of the substance previously. And it's just like, I don't know. This, I mean, that just sounds like, I don't, I, I just can't get with it. I just, I don't know. I, I don't know how proven that is. And like, I think there's no, but you know, you don't, I, I don't, I don't think there's any proof of that. No proof. I don't even think there's like a mechanism by which it could work. But I, I love yoga. I practice yoga all the time. Sometimes the explanations that someone might give you in a yoga class are not attuned to physical reality. Yeah, sure. But that doesn't mean that the practice itself might not be sure, helpful for sure. people. So I guess that's kind of where I fall. I, yeah, I, I, I see that. I do see that. I'm just, I just think that for me, there's so the well is poisoned with it. So like I, mm -hmm. what you're saying, I think is, is fair, but, and maybe there are some things in, in homeopathy that can do that, but there's just some absolutely fucking bonkers things. And it's just like, I don't know how I can take that. And maybe some of this other stuff, like this isn't just like, Oh, that's a kind of strange explanation, but like, whatever, I still feel effects. There's some like wacky stuff out there. And like, you know, what are the healing stones? And like, it just starts getting really, really like wild. And it's like, okay, I mean, whatever. People can do what they want. That's fine. Um, but I certainly think if you're going to do that, as opposed to getting chemo treatment or, you know, taking your insulin or whatever, like that's definitely not okay. And I think yeah. people, I think it's fine if people kind of like yourself kind of know like, okay, like I know what this is. I know what it isn't. And I'm fine with that. That's cool. But it, People don't usually feel that way. They're usually like, no, I'm going to tell you, like, this is real. This is a thing. And it's like, I don't know. I won't get off on a religious tangent, but it feels very much like kind of how people view religion. It's like, no. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I mean, having said that, I would never, I, I don't take any No, I'm not saying you do. So I'm not saying not, but, but, but I guess I just feel like, oh, I feel very torn to sort of disparage something other people find helpful, even if I think the reasons that they find it helpful 
are the wrong reasons. You know, I guess I wouldn't be averse to people taking something and saying, oh, I'm taking this. It's like, it's a placebo, but it works for me. That's what I would like people to to say. That's how I'd like people (laughs) to explain. That's fair. I mean, I get that. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying is kind of where I've fallen on like people that pray. It's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. just basically talking to yourself or you're, you're talking out into space. And that's fine. Like if, if that it's not harming anybody, um, if, you know, I think not really, but I think it's one of those things where it's like, sometimes it can be, if someone's in a tough spot that can be, they think it's real and that's fine, I guess. But it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it feels, uh, it can give them some peace. All right. Okay. But you know, I, I don't know. It's again, it's not a, a great comparison, but it just feels sort of in my, in my view, it feels sort of in the same universe to me. It's like, okay, like that's fine. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, but equally, if someone is praying, you know, for their for their daughter to recover from cancer instead of yeah. taking them for chemo, then then prayer and too this, is and, very destructive. And this and this happens. And this, I have known people that did not go to the doctors because they thought some prayers were going to cure them of their heart disease, and they died. I, I just, anyways. Okay, so, <laughs> um, okay, is uh, is therapy placebo? Um, this is a yes question I've no. thought about for a yeah. long time and I'm actually not, I, I kind of think it is, but, and, and I do it every day for a living. So, <laughs> so, okay. Tell, what are your thoughts on this? On, on if it's placebo? So, so yes and no, yes and no. I think therapy has things in common with placebo in that, you know, I think it affects overlapping expectation type mechanisms in the brain, especially when it works sort of, that's like what you hope therapy does. I also think therapy does other things. It depends on the type of therapy. You know, you have many therapy types where actually what you're doing is modifying someone's physiology. You're trying to get them to regulate their breath, regulate their heart rate. So that's clearly not placebo. That's an active, an active intervention um, that you're doing. So I think sort of placebo is one important like ingredient, I guess, in what therapy is. One, one key element of it, but maybe not everything. I think there are, there are many aspects of therapy that are not actually placebo, but that are um, other processes to improving someone's mental health. Um, but that, that does cause a problem. And the problem is that you cannot have placebo controlled trials of therapy, really, if placebo is an active element. Yeah. Or at least it's much harder. Now, I do think placebo is an element of other treatments as well, but maybe I think it's an especially core aspect of therapy such that if you subtract it, you know, it's not really therapy. Other aspects are left. It's not really what it was to begin with. So I think it does kind of complicate the situation for like proper double blind RCTs, which are, you know, essentially impossible in therapy. Yeah. Yeah. With the study, even, even now, I mean, even, even if anybody that's, that's doing good, good science knows, you know, it's all based on self-report if you're doing outcome and it's just, it's so hard to do solid studies of the efficacy and the effectiveness of therapy. There is certainly a wide and voluminous range of literature on something like cognitive behavioral therapy or some of the behavioral stuff, even some of the, you know, relational interpersonal psychodynamic therapies for sure. But there are, I would say in all of those, uh, weaknesses with, with some of those studies, I mean, much like every study has strengths and weaknesses. I'm not saying that, you know, there's a perfect study out there, but 
it does kind of get to this like, okay, so how did they get the, the, the subjective report? You know, what was the qualitative component of this? Oh, a self-report measure. Okay, well, you know, and, and how can you try, even when you're doing it without that, like it's hard to know kind of the efficacy. I, again, I'm, I think, again, as someone that does this every day, I think therapy works. I think it's effective. I'm not saying it's not. But in an academic context, I do think that there are some uh, limits and, and weaknesses from some of the studies that have been done on, on, on kind of this component that we're talking about with, you know, the placebo and pure versus, you know, kind of mixed in there and things like that. I think it's complicated. So. Yeah, it's not unique to therapy. Lots of treatments yeah. have a problem with placebo arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not unique. So real quick, uh, just about alternative treatments. You mentioned many of them. Um, so we, we could spend more time on all of these, but I, I kind of just as a broad kind of thing. So obviously there's antidepressants. Um, uh, I talked with uh, Peter Kramer on here who, who wrote that book on listening to Prozac and he's very much mm-hmm. he's a psychiatrist and talks about, uh, you know, antidepressants work, Prozac works. And I think, yes, uh, obviously something's going on, but even he agreed that the serotonin hypothesis was never meant to be a slam dunk, you know, whatever. And people keep trying to, you know, refute it and things like that. And I think it's kind of established that it's not really what we thought it was. Uh, so you can talk about that if you want the role of antidepressants and serotonin, but then also some of the other alternative treatments such as, you know, TMS, ECT, uh, ketamine, MDMA, uh, psilocybin, and some of these other kinds of things that are alternatives to just therapy and, uh, prescribed drugs. Um, and where do you see a lot of people get excited about the psilocybin stuff and it's like, I don't know. I mean, I like it. I think it has a lot of promise and I think it's great. Um, so I'm a big supporter and fan of that research, but I mean, people will think that, oh, there's three studies. So, you know, I'm going to, you know, start eating shrooms and microdose it on my own at home. It's like, I don't think the way to do that. I mean, people can do what they want. So, but um, yeah, anyway, so yeah, tell us about antidepressants, serotonin hypothesis if you want, and then some of the alternative treatments such as uh, psychedelics and the TMS, ECT stuff. Yeah. I mean, I guess in reverse, psychedelic studies make therapy studies look like the most robust, well-blinded studies <laughs> in the universe <laughs> because it's so hard yeah. to make someone blind to a psychedelic, especially if they've taken one before yeah. and then they know whether they're taking LSD, psilocybin, or they're taking a tiny dose of it that isn't causing any kind of psychedelic effects. So I would like to see more. This is my sort of wish for the field. Mm -hmm. I would like to see more studies with quite active control groups, Mm -hmm. control groups taking ketamine, Mm -hmm. you know, some control groups taking an amphetamine, something that you would expect to have really quite different mechanisms, um, different effects immediately and chronically, but, but also most importantly, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell the difference in a naive participant. So if you recruit people who've never taken a psychedelic and you give them ketamine, honestly, I don't think people would know the difference. Like you'd have to be an expert. So I really think that's what I would like to see from that field is a better um, differentiation of what results are specific to psychedelics compared to this kind of amazing anticipation expectancy effect that I think is still playing a role um, in some psychedelic results. Maybe the opposite is true of antidepressants where people have been so cautious about the efficacy of antidepressants, even though they, it is 
shockingly well demonstrated for kind of psychiatry studies, our literature, there is such consistency in the efficacy of antidepressants. It's not a treatment for everyone. It's not without side effects. It's not that there's one type. It might be a different type for a different person that works, but they, they certainly overall as a group of medications um, are effective treatments for depression. And I, I, I really kind of mourn the fact that that has become a controversial statement, a statement that's, you know, like, oh, you're taking the side of like big pharma. And it's like, no, I, I'm just literally taking the side of boring spreadsheets. You know? <laughs> uh, as to how they work, that's a much funner question yeah, yeah. Um, and very ripe for debate. Mm -hmm. So I think even when I was an undergraduate many, many, many moons ago, we were taught that the serotonin theory of depression was not fully accurate. Mm -hmm. I also don't think it's fully wrong. Yeah. I think there are elements of serotonin that play into all of our mood and disruptions to that system might play a role in engendering mood disturbances in some people. Mm -hmm. But it's not a simplistic, it's not like Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. It's not a simplistic, you're missing this chemical, you need this chemical, one-to-one -one mapping. Mm -hmm. But they do do something really interesting via the serotonin system. So a big mystery is that although they increase serotonin, I talk about this um, in one chapter in my book, they increase serotonin immediately. They don't increase your mood immediately. They take weeks to affect your mood, mm -hmm. if at all. Yeah. But what they do do immediately, whether or not you're depressed, is just ever so slightly modify your perception of emotional things, emotional sentences, emotional faces, and they shift your interpretation towards a slightly more neutral, slightly more positive interpretation from an originally more negative interpretation. If you're depressed, a kind of common disruption in information processing. Um, now, I don't think this is universal either. This is in my view, one reason why antidepressants don't work for everyone, which is that their mechanism of action is not 100%, because it might not be the kind of mechanism for depression in everyone. But for some people, that shift, that little shift that happens from the moment you take it will over time add up to become a kind of grander change in mood. And I think that's something quite phenomenal, maybe something currently not exploited enough by the way we use antidepressants. We use them kind of forever treatments, chronic treatments, but mm. actually maybe there are ways that they could be paired with certain psychological interventions used in certain periods of time. And that would really get the most out of them as drugs. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with everything you said there. I think that I, I think if it works with people, it's not meant to be, you know, there's all those studies that say like, you know, more efficacy when paired with some type of, uh, uh, therapeutic intervention. Okay. Yes. But as opposed to just doing it alone. But I also agree. I don't think maybe the drugs are meant to be long-term use. Um, I think that obviously our, our bodies are very adaptive and, and we start to have a higher ceiling for things or a lower ceiling, whichever way you want to look at it. And yeah, I would agree. I think that, I think it depends. That's not to say that it would be harmful for people long-term, not, not at all, but just is the, is the potency of it going to be there? And, and uh, yeah, I think it's stuff. This is kind of in the, in the, I think you and I are kind of talking in the context of people that have uh, a certain severity of depression. Now, people that have really severe depression or anxiety or other types of, of, of challenges, um, you know, that's much harder. I mean, I think you do need uh, a variety of treatments to try and combat that um, and, and be very difficult. That's where something like 
maybe an ECT, although there's, there's you know, downsides to that, but. Um, yeah, that was why I included it. You know, when I told my wife that I was going to include ECT in this book, she said, huge mistake. Don't well, do it. One, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You know, what are all the films we've seen about all that? <laughs> she just knew that the reception that I might get is as, you know, promoting some horrible intervention that would provoke these, you know, these feelings of like, no one should be subject to that. But I guess the way that I feel is that for really, really severe depression, yeah. ECT is the most effective it is. treatment. It is. And I think it's shameful that we kind of speak about it in hushed tones and, you know, like a, like a horrible shame in psychiatry when actually it's really amazing that there is a treatment, a serious treatment, a treatment not without side effects, yeah. but that a treatment, it can actually fix really, really horrifically you know, a, a terrible situation mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. people. Yeah, I, I've seen this happen. And um, when I worked in uh, inpatient hospitals, I would see people come in and I can't describe the amount, like depression, like clinical depression at severe levels is really, it's not, I feel not motivated or sad today, like we talked about earlier. Severe depression clinically is almost catatonic, right? Yeah. It's, it is, it is, I mean, really almost disturbing to see. It's like, oh, wow. Like it's, it's really kind of thing to behold. And then seeing people come in again in an inpatient hospital to, to get ECT treatments and to see them be improved is a marvel. And I, and I, I mean, that's what, when we, when, when I read that in the book, that's what I took it as. And that's what I'm saying. I think that's what you're saying. We're talking about extreme severe forms. This isn't that common. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but uh, of depression, you know, not that, you know, you, you, your, 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 your fluoxetine isn't working. So go and get some ECT treatments. Nobody's saying that, of course. Um, You know, I think it really is very extreme cases and it's, and again, it's a marvel that it can be effective. So I think that that's, that's a, that's a positive thing. Um, Okay. So, all of these things uh, about mental health. How do we? Uh, how do we? How do we look at? How do we look at mental health, knowing all the science behind it and these things, accurately? And how do we talk about it without all of the pop psych bullshit and the Instagram influencers and the and the memes and the self help books? And I think that. As as critical as I am of those things, people do need something that is very tangible, something that is very informative and accurate, not these kind of shortcuts to make a quick buck. Um, so I think your book is 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 a big contributor to trying to do that accurately and to help people understand things uh, well. But how do we have this conversation, and how do we think about it for ourselves about a, a lifestyle of having you know good mental health generally? I think the biggest takeaway that my book can give you is that there are these these myriad routes into poor mental health, overlapping, distinct. There are these ways out with different kinds of treatments. But if we know one thing, we know that because there are so many ways into poor mental health, there is no silver bullet that's going to work for everyone's mental health. And that is the biggest takeaway. 
that I would like people to understand. There may well be something that works for you, which is amazing, but it might be that you read about some incredible new discovery. It's worked in a trial and it doesn't work for you. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with that treatment. It means that the kind of mapping of your mental health and the way your brain has supported it has not aligned with what that treatment is targeting. Yeah, that's very nicely said, and I and I fully agree. And um, we we need more people like you doing good research and to communicate it as well as you have in the book. Again, the book is The Balanced Brain, uh, The Science of Mental Health. It's out in the UK already. It's uh, here in, through Princeton, the wonderful Princeton in the United States. Um, Camilla, what can I say? This was uh, so, so, so helpful. I was greatly looking forward to this. Um, especially when it's uh, folks in my field doing good work. And so you were a delight to talk to. Your book is wonderful. And I'm so very happy and thankful that you you came on and uh, gave us all your wisdom. Thank you so much.